0: Welcome to the October 21st, 2007 podcast of Reverend Liz and Friends at the Unitarian Universalist Church of Silver Spring. For those of you who read Dante in high school or college and figured it would never, ever, ever come in handy, Now is your moment. (laughs) Because most people agree that they find Dante's Inferno, his treatise on hell, the most compelling of his trilogy. The one on purgatory, purgatorio, is so-so. The one on heaven, paradiso, is pretty slow going. Everyone is calm, everyone's got all the answers, no one is passionate or exciting or even funny. Everyone's just content. And it's kind of a snore, even occasionally a little annoying when the line between righteous and self-righteous gets a little thin. This suggests something important about human nature and our relationship with evil. Much as we may hate it, wring our hands at it, stoke our raging hearts at it, or take it on and fight no holds barred for its defeat. Evil fascinates. The old film seductress Mae West said, between two two evils, I always like to pick the one I never tried before. (laughs) And her words, words, too, point out that evil on one level is accessible, even entertaining as we saw also in our reading this morning. That book is a prime example of the weird, fascinating, entertaining side of evil. Couldn't we just listen to that Dr. Impossible rattle on for a while longer? Larry McEnany's right. We do gotta love evil. So melodramatic. So colorful. But he's also right that real evil is less colorful and a lot more complicated and disturbing. And that complexity is introduced early on in the book as well. In the middle, you may have noticed, of his introductory rant, a key issue is planted. What makes Dr. Impossible evil? He doesn't really know why he's evil, though his ongoing narration in the book starts to suggest some life experience reasons that probably had a place in his formation. He ties it loosely to his superintelligence, but that's not enough, as he himself concedes. He says later, all superheroes have an origin. They make a big deal of it. The story of how they got their powers and their mission bitten by a radioactive bug. They fight crime and avenge their dead families. And villains... We come on the scene, costumed and leering, colorfully working out our inexplicable grudge against the world with an oversized zap gun or cosmic wormhole. But why do we rob banks rather than guard them? Why did I freeze the Supreme Court, impersonate the Pope, (laughs) hold the moon hostage? If I were talking to Dr. Impossible, I would probably cite George Lucas's excruciating last three movies detailing just how Darth Vader came to be Darth Vader, costumed and leering and arch villainous, etc. But since I'm talking to you, I will just mention that a page later, Dr. Impossible goes on to talk about how annoying the psychiatrist is who keeps asking him questions in prison. Who was the first one to hit you? When did you leave home? Why did you want to control the world? Do you feel out of control? The psychiatrist questions are kind of funny because of their scope. Why did you want to control the world? And because they're so typical. In this ridiculously extraordinary circumstance, they're still what we always ask and always wonder. And we all know what I mean if I talk about being tempted by evil. There's something in human nature that hearkens to its call on one level or another. Which of us has not had a thought in our lives that did not shock us? When it's a little call to a small evil, we don't call it evil, right? We call it petty. When it escalates from that, we move along a continuum that can lead to petty dictators or worse. What is the reason for evil? What seeds the harrowing acts of even one twisted person or a mob of people or a nation? What upbringing or abuse or context or genetic or a chemical or hormonal deficiencies generate evil in us? There are a lot of answers to these questions in many faith traditions, from scripture to religious doctrine to prescribed forms of response Serious options from exorcism to forms for the wrongdoers' repentance and atonement to philosophy and sociology. Holocaust survivor and social philosopher Hannah Arendt had her striking definition of the banality of evil that you may be familiar with. The banality of evil by which she meant that ordinary people tend to obey orders and go along with the mass of people without critically thinking about the results of their action or inaction. She said, in fact, quote, The sad truth is that most evil is done by people who never make up their minds to be good or evil. Catholics, for example, have lots of definitions and sub definitions, including one of my favorites, which is occasions of sin. And I'm 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 both serious and lighthearted about this. I really do love this definition. There's more to it than I can go on in the sermon but generally it is and i'm quoting now from wikipedia which has actually great resources on catholic religion <laughs> In Roman Catholic teaching external set of circumstances whether of things or persons which either because of their special nature or because of the frailty common to humanity or peculiar to some individual incite or entice one to sin Years ago, an ex-Catholic Unitarian Universalist minister called me and some of my ministerial friends' occasions of sin, and we were very flattered. It's racy talk among the clergy. Most religions and philosophies treat these issues, but there's not a lot in Unitarian Universalism about it. There's nothing in our central document, the purposes and principles. And the discussion of evil, or what I'm calling really major evil, sin, isn't anywhere in our contemporary documents or dialogues or discussions. I think that's because we're uncomfortable with that language and those concepts. They're extreme terms for us, aren't they? And they're very condemnatory. And often we are uncomfortable without outright condemnation, because we know so often there are other factors like extenuating circumstances. But those mitigating factors don't redefine all wrongdoing, particularly the most extreme wrongdoing. And while sin is an old-fashioned and judgmental word, Are there not some acts and events so heinous in the world as to merit the term nonetheless? Do we actually not talk about sin because we don't believe there is any sin? Just explanations? These are not just hypothetical questions for lovers of abstract theological debate. Defining evil or sin is not important in terms of finger-pointing or self-righteous justification. It's important because that's an important step in figuring out how to respond to it. Like an addiction or a goal for self-improvement or love, we have to be able to name it, to recognize it. And then we act and respond from there. Without recognition or definition, how can we counter from a faith position inarguably actual evil? Ultimately, evil comes down to the issue of agency and falls into one of two categories. One is what I'm calling natural evil, which is mischance, disease, natural disasters which are not acts of God, earthquakes and tidal waves and drought. They are bad luck, tragic circumstance, deeply unfair, catastrophic events, and though Insurance calls natural disasters acts of God. For liberal religionists, the term speaks only to their incomprehensible scope, rather than to any reasonable belief in a deity who communicates with us through such forms of devastation. Whether disasters or crises or tragedies are evil at all has been debated, but I come down on the side of their being evil because of their results rather than their causes. These are events with consequences so terrible as to be a form of evil because they cause suffering, oppression, destroy lives and relationships and communities. The other, also debatable, form of evil is human evil. And this is the kind embodied in villains, real or imaginary. And it involves will, or at least choice. This kind of evil is caused, created by people, war, utter selfishness that induces us to sacrifice others' well-being for our own profit or comfort or desires, violence, prejudice, fear of differences, tyranny, whether or not it results from a chain of experiences or a chain of lifetimes or seems spontaneously generated, fully formed in itself, this form of evil is about intention and disregard for suffering, the oppression of others, the destruction of lives and relationships and communities. The complexity here is how responsible the instigator really is for his and her or her actions based on factors like psychology and societal conditions and bio- biological input. This is where we get into debates about Hitler or Paul Potts upbringing, Charles Manson's brain chemistry, the generational chain of domestic abuse, even the devastating potential of postpartum depression. But my concern this morning is not to discuss ad hominem experiences of evil's dynamics, rather larger faith and community responses to evil. We UUs speak very readily about the inherent worth of dignity of every human being, and we speak far less often of the shadow side that we each also possess. That kind of evil is not only around us, it is in us. We all have the capacity to attack or debase life, We have choices about whether to increase the amount of evil in the world or not, to strive to alleviate suffering in the world or not, and to go beyond merely legalistic definitions of actions and decisions as unjust or unfair or not. President Ahmadinejad spoke at Columbia University last week. My response to that event traces back to when I was a very young teen I was young enough to be confused about the events regarding the Shah of Iran and his overthrow, and old enough to appreciate the pressure that the hostage-taking and then the horrible totting up of days every night on the evening news put on then-President Carter. And I was old enough to be very clear that when Ayatollah Khomeini went out to the desert where the failed rescue helicopters had crashed and picked up the charred, dismembered arm of a dead Marine and brandished it, as he declaimed a message of triumph to the news cameras, I was old enough to know that you do not grab and gesture with the body part of a dead person, even a dead enemy. It is fundamentally inhumane. So I have watched with confusion and attention and sadness and hope and sadness again what has evolved in that country, and in our relations with it since the hostages were released decades ago. And I was paying attention to the furor around President Ahmadinejad's address because of his position on almost any issue. I was disturbed that Colombia was offering him a forum. Here is an excerpt from the beginning of University President Lee Bollinger's introduction to President Ahmadinejad. First, since 2003, the World Leaders Forum has advanced Colombia's long-standing tradition of serving as a major forum for robust debate, especially on global issues. It should never be thought that merely to listen to ideas we deplore in any way implies our endorsement of those ideas or the weakness of our resolve to resist those ideas or our naivete about the very real dangers inherent in such ideas. It is a critical premise of freedom of speech that we do not honor the dishonorable when we open the public forum to their voices. To hold otherwise would make vigorous debate impossible. Second, to those who believe that this event should never have happened, that it is inappropriate for the university to conduct such an event, I want to say that I understand your your perspective and I respect it as reasonable. The scope of free speech and academic freedom should itself always be open to further debate. As one of the more famous quotations about free speech goes, it is, quote, an experiment as all life is an experiment, unquote. I want to say, however, as forcefully as I can that this is the right thing to do, and indeed it is required by existing norms of free speech, the American University, and Columbia itself. Third, to those among us who experience hurt and pain as a result of this day, I say on behalf of all of us, we are sorry and wish to do what we can to alleviate it. Fourth, to be clear on another matter, this event has nothing whatsoever to do with any rights of the speaker, but only with our rights to listen and speak. We do it for ourselves. We do it in the great tradition of openness that has defined this nation for many decades now. We need to understand the world we live in, neither neglecting its glories nor shrinking from its threats and dangers. It is consistent with the idea that one should know thine enemies to have the intellectual and emotional courage to confront the mind of evil and to prepare ourselves to act with the right temperament. In the moment, the arguments for free speech will never seem to match the power of the arguments against. But what we must remember is that this is precisely because free speech asks us to exercise extraordinary self-restraint against the very natural, but often counterproductive impulses that lead us to retreat from engagement with ideas we dislike and fear. In this lies the genius of the American idea of free speech. Lastly, in universities, we have a deep and almost single-minded commitment to pursue the truth. We do not have access to the levers of power. We cannot make war or peace. We can only make minds. And to do this, we must have the full freedom of inquiry. Then President Bollinger turned to speak directly to President Ahmadinejad and included in an extensive catalog of wrongs, uh, also including that they are currently detaining a Columbia professor under house arrest in Iran. They only released him just before President Ahmadinejad left for America. President Bollinger continued, in a December 2005 state television broadcast, you described the Holocaust as a fabricated legend. One year later, you held a two-day conference of Holocaust deniers. For the illiterate and ignorant, this is dangerous propaganda. When you come to a place like this, this makes you quite simply ridiculous. You are either brazenly provocative or astonishingly uneducated. You should know that Colombia is a world center of Jewish studies. And now in partnership with the YIVO Institute of Holocaust Studies, since the 1930s we've provided an intellectual home for countless Holocaust refugees and survivors and their children and grandchildren. The truth is that the Holocaust is the most documented event in human history. Because of this and for many other reasons, your absurd comments about the debate over the Holocaust both defy historical truth and make all of us who continue to fear humanity's capacity for evil shudder. At this closure of memory, which is always virtue's first line of defense. Will you cease this outrage? He had a little more to say, and of course, President Ahmadinejad had a lot to say in response. But President Bollinger's words show that Colombia decided to host President Ahmadinejad in order to go head-to-head with serious wrongdoing, rather than merely eschew it and to hold a bad man accountable not only for his own actions, but also for contributing on a larger scale to attacking vital memory and understanding of the evil that all people are capable of. Columbia's example is a good lesson for us. Because while Hannah Arendt's thesis about evil's banality rings true, and has indeed tested true in the work of social psychologists, there's more to it than that. One critic in writing about Arendt's idea said the stress her thesis puts on social and administrative structures in easing the path of human conscience towards barbarity gives insufficient weight to where it does not altogether deny those human natural impulses of cruelty, the actual enjoyment of the misfortunes of others regularly unleashed when the usual restraining circumstances allow them to be. The 19th century French writer Alphonse de Lamartine wrote, L'homme est un dieu tombé qui se souvient des cieux. Man is a fallen god with a memory of heaven. Along with the sacred spark that dances in every human soul, it seems there is in all of us also a seed of something fallen. It may be nurtured and twine, strangulating our lives or it may be exposed to dry and wither in the bright sun. And it seems, as Arendt points out, that thinking and questioning and taking responsibility are essential to a better chance of good moral choices and ethical living for fanning the spark and withering the seed. That means we Unitarian Universalists are lucky because this aligns tightly with some of our most important faith traditions, our heritage of inquiry, of a conscience, of self-culture, and personal responsibility of engaging to fight with what is wrong and to stand even at great cost for what is right. We must use that heritage and those skills as individuals and as a movement to identify what is wrong and what is deeply wrong, even so wrong as to be evil, even so evil as to be sinful. We cannot content ourselves with looking only to what is good, speaking only to what is right, affirming only what is best. We must not be afraid to name evil when we encounter it. The goal, again, is not to be self-righteous or mere blamecasters. Former Unitarian Universalist Association president, the Reverend John Burens, made news some years ago when he said... In a television interview, that Unitarian Universalists teach that homophobia, not homosexuality, is the sin. His stance, together with his language, reminds us that faith issues are all around us in the world, and faith terms apply. When we engage with both sides, good and bad, and do the hard and careful work of sometimes applying the most powerful terms, sacred and evil, Blessing and grace and sin. Then can we work, not only rightly, but faithfully. Not only for what is good, but against what is so wrong. Let us engage and think and struggle and finally name. May we find the right words. And may they serve us in gaining clarity and standing for what we ought. And may they help us grow into a mighty force that names the wrong and the right and is not afraid and is not just confused and does not shirk and becomes stronger and wiser than we are. Amen.